welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 11. I'm Nick Dixon, and as ever, I'm joined by our glorious leader, Mr. Toby Young. Coming up, Dave Chappelle is in trouble yet again, Trump takes on DeSantis, and Dominic Raab takes on a tomato. All that and more, plus our weekly roundup with Will Jones, and a bumper edition of Peak Woke. But Toby, two alpha males at war... One has the raw charisma and the ability to galvanize an entire anti-establishment movement. The other, less talented, but able to use the system to get some key policies through. But enough about me and you, Toby. Let's talk about Trump versus DeSantis. (laughs) You can see how I see it from that intro. But um, I'm pro-Trump. You're pro-DeSantis. Let's call the whole thing off. What do you think? Yeah, well, I was um, pleased that DeSantis... um, uh, massively increased his majority in Florida. Um, and also, I think, pleased that the results um, have given Trump some pause. I mean, no doubt he will declare anyway. But, um, you know, I think he he thought that he would he would be able to announce on the back of a red wave of victories. Uh, and they didn't materialize. And seemingly, they didn't materialize, at least in part, because um, Trump is not that popular. And the candidates he endorsed to maintain that the 2020 election was stolen um, fared quite poorly. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think that um, DeSantis would make a much better president than Trump. I think he believes in many of the same things, um, but uh, he's competent, he's not crazy, um, and I think he genuinely could deliver a landslide victory in 24, whereas I doubt that Trump could. So, uh, you know, and obviously I, I, I think Trump kind of wobbled, didn't quite get the lockdown response, the response to the pandemic right, kind of wobbled on the lockdown, wobbled on the vaccines, whereas um, DeSantis has been pretty consistent. And um, after what the summer of 2020 didn't lock down again, didn't close schools in Florida, listened to some of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration when shaping his response to the pandemic in Florida. Um, so yeah, I, I like I like DeSantis. He seems like a kind of grown up, sensible version of Trump, um, <laughs> who might actually win uh, in 24. Um, uh, whereas I'm not sure Trump can. Well, Yes, I've heard all those arguments and I've heard them from many pundits and that's become the kind of normie pundit thing to say. No offense to you, of course, Toby, but the um, Trump, but the thing is Trump won Florida by more, didn't he? As he was keen to point out, DeSantis does very well in Florida. He's a good governor of Florida. He should definitely stay doing that or he could be VP if they could sort it out. That would all be great, but he's just, he's just not Trump. He doesn't have the charisma of Trump. His, he doesn't have the speaking ability. He doesn't have the he doesn't have the ability, as I said, to galvanize a whole movement. The, the 2016 Trump phenomenon is a once-in-a-generation, a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon, whereas DeSantis is just a normal politician who's quite good. And I, I was swinging towards what you were saying. I was, I was up late watching it, and the Daily Wire people were all saying that, except Michael Knowles, who I think is kind of low-key, the smartest one. He was, he was still a bit more pro-Trump. And I think it is a mistake to just go fully behind DeSantis, because I just don't think he has... Trump terrifies the establishment in a way that... DeSantis doesn't. They seem fine with DeSantis. And we don't know what he'd do when he when he got in. Would he just be all establishment? Obviously, Trump, as you say, backed the vaccine. That is a big flaw for Trump. And his, his base don't like it. He had that argument with Candace Owens about it. But there is just something different about it. But I understand that I'm against the tide here because apparently Trump has a, a hundred million, which is mainly in small donors, whereas DeSantis has 200 million war chests and, it, and it's, it's larger donors. He's got this guy, Ken Griffin, 
who's a he's a sort of Republican mega donor. So he's got him. So I understand that it's all shifting to DeSantis. The narrative is shifting. The pundits, more importantly, the donors. But I'm still Team Trump because I just think he's he's just on a different level, and he terrifies the establishment in a way that DeSantis doesn't. Yeah, it's probably true that um, the establishment is even more horrified at the prospect of another <laughs> Trump presidency than Ron DeSantis winning in 24. But that doesn't mean that DeSantis is, you know, an establishment candidate. I mean, he he certainly bucked the uh, consensus with his um, management of the pandemic in Florida. Um, and, um, you know, his, his, uh, his decision to relocate illegal migrants to Martha's Vineyard was a kind of trolling masterstroke, uh, which certainly seemed to antagonize the kind of, you know, left coast liberal elite. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't think you can claim that he is in any sense a kind of creature of the, you know, <laughs> the elite. Um, but um, I mean, I think the problem with 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 Trump is that, um, yes, he can kind of galvanize his base in a way that, you know, um, DeSantis might not be able to. Um, but he also antagonizes a lot of people. I mean, he's a very polarizing figure. And that base is not sufficient to push him over the line in 24, I don't think. Uh, maybe if Biden was the Democratic candidate, but that just seems inconceivable. I mean, he'd be dead by then. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I mean, um, uh, everyone expected Biden to do far, well, the, the Democrats to do far worse than they did. Um, because, you know, Biden's approval ratings are low, inflation is higher than it's been in decades. Um, the economy is kind of uh, spluttering. Um, uh, and the reason he didn't do more badly, um, it, it must be must be down to Trump. And Trump, you know, did well in 2016, well enough anyway, but hasn't really done well in any electoral contest since. Um, and it seems like the Republicans have been underperforming um, since 2016 because of the, you know, monopoly that Trump has Um over the party. And uh, I think it's time to lance that boil, else, you know, we may be in opposition for another six years. You say that, but the whole party's realigned as a Trump party. I mean, even DeSantis, a lot of the best stuff about him, like, like you're saying, the trolling move with the Martha's Vineyard and so on, is copied from Trump. A lot of his rhetoric is copied from Trump. It's a Trump party now. Yes, there's the argument that does DeSantis do Trumpism better than Trump? I understand all that. The reason they lost, though, is, is, is a bit more complicated, isn't it? For one thing, there's the idea that the, the Republicans are going to suddenly get the Hispanic and black vote, which didn't really happen. Hispanic people still voted 60% Democrat, which seems to be what they always do. Black people, it's something like 89%, 90%. Some people can call me out on the exact figures. They didn't really get that in the way they thought they would. There was also the young women, of course, coming out to vote for the ability to kill babies uh, because the Roe versus Wade was overturned. That's that's how I'm phrasing that <laughs> in the most incendiary way possible. But it's interesting what galvanizes people. That People are terrified they won't be able to get an abortion. So that in our godless world, that really galvanizes people. The other thing is the dodginess of the, the ballots, which we have to talk about a bit. Now, I'm not going to go... Now, we have, I definitely have questions about Arizona. I've got questions about it. The, the dodgy voting machines, it takes so long to count. Then the, the person who didn't campaign at all, Hobbs, and is in charge of overseeing the election wins. I mean, Tim Young's put it here on Twitter. He says, looking forward to Katie Hobbs auditing the results of the election Katie Hobbs was in charge of and was declared the winner of to conclude that Katie Hobbs did nothing wrong while in charge of the election that Katie Hobbs was declared the winner of. I mean, <laughs> it is a bit odd. I have questions. She didn't even debate, as I said. The other thing, though, Toby, apart from the full-on conspiracy side, is just the the changes in the way that the elections are done. So, You've got the early votes and you've got the absentee ballots and the early votes. 
basically we'd call it postal voting. This came in during COVID. It helped the Democrats, so they kept it for no reason. But what's also interesting is on top of that is the rejection rates have changed by a magnitude of 10, apparently, so that in the past you could send in a ballot and you, you didn't put your surname on or you didn't sign it. Or you just you filled it out incorrectly in, in a number of ways. It, that was rejected. Now those are all accepted. Why? Because, of course, Democrats have realized dumb people are their core demographic. People who can't write their own name, they now <laughs> accept those ballots. And these, this has led to a massive change. It's very hard for... So even if you say it's actual cheating or just kind of manipulation, it's very hard for Republicans to win now. Any comment on any of that? Yeah, well, I think that the problem is, I mean, you know, even if there is a grain of truth in the steel theory... Um, uh, it's just electoral kryptonite. Um, uh, you know, um, more votes are lost um, by by claiming that they've been stolen than are actually stolen. Uh, and, and seemingly the Democrats actually financed a lot of the kind of uh, stop the steal pro-Trump candidates in the midterms, knowing that they are just electoral poison. So, uh, you know, even if you think there's a grain of truth in that hypothesis, I think to continue to blame election fraud on Trump's failure to do better is a guarantee that Trump will not win in 24. But I do think, you know, I think I think happily, Nick, um, we will be in a position to test your hypothesis, uh, because I think in all likelihood, Trump will declare DeSantis won't want to go up against him and um, he will run again in 24. And you know, assuming Biden is not the Democratic nominee, um, he'll probably lose. He'll still he still may lose because there will never be a, a fair election. But then again, <laughs> I'll, I'll just say that, and you'll just say that it wasn't the reason. No, it was all the people claiming just... the election wouldn't be fair. Is the reason he lost? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're in a bit of a stalemate there. I understand Trump is the romantic candidate, and I understand DeSantis is the is the pragmatist candidate. But there's no guarantee DeSantis will will win either. So you know. No, so, but I think, I think, I think it's mad that anyone votes Democrats. Though. How mad is it that anyone votes for these people? They've destroyed the economy. They would destroy the entire social and moral fabric. They hate America. They want to, you know, the radical, not the JFK Democrats, but the radical Biden Democrats want to just destroy the entire country. Why do people still vote for them? Yeah, it's 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 a mystery to me. Um, I certainly wouldn't if I was a U.S. citizen. Um, you know, I think uh, I sort of expected Biden to tack to the center and, you know, Build, rebuild the Democratic coalition um, that was responsible for Clinton's success and Obama's success, um, and not to kind of tack to the left and kind of uh, pander to his kind of identitarian, kind of fanatical base. But that's what he's done. And I'm sorry that he wasn't punished more severely for it. Yeah, I never thought he would. I, I always thought he'd be extremely radical. And yeah, he's not really in charge, obviously, but his administration would be extremely radical, the most radical ever. And I was proved right. Sam Harris was wrong, saying that it was the adults back in the room. I never believed that. You need to just get more radical like me, Toby. But I know you have to be very careful these days not to get cancelled again. So uh, it's funny. You spend all your time battling conspiracy theories. Now you've got to battle my reactionary views um, and, <laughs> on this podcast. I'll but, probably um, be cancelled anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Just for knowing me. Um, but all right. Well, that's the elections dealt with. And let's stick with politics. But in the... The UK scene, and let's go to Dominic Raab, who's been in trouble for Tomato Gate. So the Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab, threw some tomatoes from a pret salad into a bag, Toby. He had took them out of the salad and threw them into a bag across the room. And this is a terrible, terrible thing that's uh, just brought British politics to its knees and led people to question uh, Rishi Sunak on what should happen, what should befall Dominic Raab. And some people yeah. in Labour have called for an investigation did you see this? 
uh, that this guy Af- Afzal Khan MP absolutely deplorable behaviour from the Justice Secretary this must be investigated immediately terrible judgement from Rishi Sunak on reappointing Raab to high office because of some tomatoes <laughs> it is ridiculous and I, I know I think I know what pret salad is being referred to here because it's my favourite <laughs> pret salad it's called the Italian salad and the tomatoes in the Italian salad well, people talk about you know tomato gate they imagine either these kind of big kind of overripe <laughs> squishy tomatoes that people used to throw at you know people put in the stocks in the medieval times um uh, but actually we're talking about hard um uh you know um uh tiny little uh tomatoes um they're the, they're the kind you get in the pret italian salad i mean they're so i mean they're they're so hard they're almost tasteless um but but throwing those into you know a basket or whatever it was across the room you're not you're not in danger of you know injuring anyone or even getting any tomato juice on their kind of um hoodies you know i mean it's uh it, it, i it, i'm a bit fed up with all the, the this 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 kind of slightly sneaky way of trying to um winkle various kind of right-wing members of the cabinet out of government whether it's Suella Braverman or Dominic Robb the claim that they've been bullying their officials um uh, and, and the claims are very rarely kind of made through official channels as Rishi Sunak pointed out when defending Dominic Robb you know they're just leaked to newspapers probably with the you know collusion of the Labour Party press office I mean why should we take these allegations seriously I mean it's as though they're kind of you know it's as though the officials themselves are kind of children and can't cope with kind of um, you know hurty feelings or or, or kind of um, you know coarse language or kind of boisterous type A behaviour. I mean, it's it's just a bit pathetic, really. Absolutely, that's what I've been thinking. Uh, uh, this the culture now. I mean, I've worked with people who you know they're under high pressure, they're under stress in a job, and they they get a bit angry, they they storm out the room, they maybe whatever throw something down, whatever it is. I think that's completely normal, and I forget about it the next day. It's just not important. I think if you're in a high-pressure job, but this is a that's a sort of masculine idea, isn't it? That's an old-fashioned, like you say, it's a sort of alpha thing or, or a kind of masculine idea. You have testosterone, you're angry, you're under pressure. I'm sure it's not just men. Obviously, Priti Patel was accused of bullying, but this idea, yeah, it, it, it's a generational thing maybe. But like you say, you can just accuse anyone of anything now. I mean, if you're a man in an office now, it's it's best to I find it best to present a sort of asexual front of just completely kind of neutral. <laughs> You've got to be incredibly careful because anyone could just make up anything. I would never do anything. Obviously, I'm a super nice guy. But if, if anyone just says the wrong thing, I mean, despite all trying to be incredibly polite and neutral, I still get called misogynist just for making a couple of jokes. But it's, if someone wants to make an accusation against you, it's over. It could be a it could be a me too thing, but it could be a tomato thing. Yeah, I mean, what, what's 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 I mean, it, and it's also there's a double standard here, isn't there, on the part of the kind of woke left who are kind of very quick to throw the bullying allegation around at kind of type A white heteronormative men, um, but you know, unhesitating about kind of piling on to someone who is uh, you know supposedly breached some precious speech code i mean you know talk about bullying i mean look at what was done to kathleen stock on suffolk campus you know by trans activists supposedly on behalf of kind of the weak and the vulnerable um you know it's uh it's hypocritical yeah and uh, and speaking of that this afzal khan guy he made this accusation against well he said investigate dominic raab take him out but then turned out he had shared anti-semitic posts and um several of them on Facebook, he said by accident, 
So perhaps it was by accident, but, you know, not completely clear conscience himself, perhaps. But yes, all right, that's Tomato Gate dealt with. Uh, let's move on to FTX, because this is a big story we can't really ignore. Uh, Mr. Bankman Fried, and he was a bankman that got fried, really, because he was a, he was a former banker, but then he got into crypto, and his company FTX has collapsed. And it's quite complicated how it actually happened, but things started to happen with where the new the Wall Street Journal, for example, said that loans were trading. Uh, they were using customer deposits as loans for trading. Then Binance started attacking them. This guy Zhao, who's the CEO of Binance, kind of the enemy of FTX, sort of uh, he 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 was talking about reports that they mishandled customer funds and and there were agency investigations against him, and that swayed their decision to take out all their investment in FTX and so on. And it ended up getting declared bankrupt. And it's quite interesting in several ways. One is because Elon Musk was sort of offered to work with this guy earlier on, but he, his BS radar went off. He said, does this guy really have 3 billion liquidity? He didn't really trust the guy. And he was quite an interesting character, this Sam Bankman-Fried. He, he had videos saying why he's a vegan and why he still drives a Toyota Corolla and he just tries to give away all his money. And he's just like, but then he he's also the second biggest donor to the Democrat Party, and Musk has pointed out on Twitter, perhaps that's some of the reason that he was able to get away with some of this stuff. I mean, someone's tweeted here, was FTX being used to launder money for the Democratic Party? WEF sponsored FTX on their website, which has now been removed. Musk wrote a question worth asking. Then there was this uh, New York Times puff piece, which sort of didn't really talk about any of the criminal aspects or potentially criminal aspects, but just said that he's getting sleep. And Musk wrote, why the puff piece, New York Times? So any comment on all this, Toby? What is the laundering allegation? Is the allegation that um, uh, the Democrats gave aid to Ukraine and Ukraine then gave money to FTX or invested in FTX and then FTX then gave money back to the Democratic Party? Is that the kind of is that the laundering allegation? Is that supposed to be the operation? Is that what they mean by laundering? I think it's to do with, with with the Ukrainian aspect, but you've you've gone beyond my um, my knowledge over there. I was okay. hoping you could you could you would know. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just latch onto it because he's a he's a he's a big Democrat donor. Yeah. So I just go he's bad. It's, I'm that simple. But apparently he did Demo- uh, donate to some Republicans as well. But far yeah, I mean, more I, to I guess Democrats. I guess my um my take on this is that um I'm a little bit surprised that everyone is shocked that you know this guy Sam. Bankman Fried has turned out to be a bit of a wrong'un. I mean, it's someone who kind of dresses the way he does, who gives vast amounts of money to Democratic candidates, who kind of brags about the fact that he's a vegan at every opportunity, who still drives a Toyota Corolla in spite of being worth billions, who champions effective altruism. I mean, you know, you could surely spot this guy coming a mile away. Um, I mean, they all, all that those people nearly always turn out to be wrong. It's like, you know, men who proclaim themselves to be feminists, you know, are almost invariably, you know, found out as kind of serial rapists. You know, I mean, maybe that's a slight exaggeration. But he, he's, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Jimmy Savile with his uh, his charity work. <laughs> no, it's that, that he's like he's like the kind of modern day equivalent, the kind of twenty first century generation Z equivalent of um, Jimmy Savile. You know, um, to, 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 to most sensible people, you know, I mean, your bullshit radar, your kind of uh, the wrong and radar, just starts kind of bleeping the moment you see a picture of this guy. Absolutely, I agree with you on that. But but since I'm not that good on details, maybe we should move on to Musk more generally. We like to do sort of. We should have a new section where we just talk about Elon Musk every week because a few things have happened. One is that Omnicom, 
This global agency, which represents 5,000 clients, including McDonald's, Apple, and Pepsi, have told customers to pause their Twitter promotions over fears of a serious risk to brand safety. We had a touch of this the other week with the uh, accountable tech doing the same thing. Basically, these, these agencies threatening Twitter with boycotts. And it's just so disgusting. It's not a new phenomenon. We're used to it now, but it's, it's another stark example of corporate power trying to destroy our way of life, in this case, free speech. I mean, someone comes out and says, I want Twitter to be a free speech platform. Then all these sinister corporations just say, well, we're removing our funds then, or they're advised to by these agencies. I mean, we used to, used to be that corporations were evil because they were ruthless capitalists. Now it's that they want a Chinese-style authoritarian system, sometimes perhaps even at the expense of profit. Yeah. Well, why has a, why has a, um, an advertising consortium supposedly concerned about brand safety named itself after a COVID-19 sub-variant? That's slightly thrown me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Omicom, it's, very, it's one letter off, it's isn't very it? very similar. And it's, yeah, it's sort of cartoonishly sinister sounding, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like, yeah, um, uh, uh, the kind of uh, organisation that Dr. Evil would have founded in you know, <laughs> Austin Powers 5. Um, uh, yeah, uh, it is It is uh, incredibly sinister, and um, you can understand why um, tr- Elon Musk wants to move to a kind of Netflix-style subscription model in order to you know, uh, reduce the influence of these big advertisers. Do you think there's a solution there for GB News? I mean, I know that Trump's rollout of his subscription model has hit a few... Um, uh, bumps but um do you think that uh gb news could take a leaf out of elon musk's book and instead of being reliant on advertisers and therefore vulnerable to campaigns like stop funding hate um could instead move to a subscription model so you know big fans of the channel would pay you know two pounds fifty a month in order to be able to get it on on screen um i mean you'd think that something like something more like the sky news model rather than or the or the sky model the sky sports model um which 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 protect it from you know being being boycotted by advertisers in in future very interesting idea yeah because it sounds sort of radical but then when you say sky sports i go yeah okay that is actually just the norm, isn't it? I sort of thought you were talking about some sort of internet model, but yeah, they could they could become like Sky Sports or something. Maybe I'll propose it. Anything that leads to me getting more money, I'm in favour of. Because yeah, we're, we're far too vulnerable to these weird stop funding hate type groups we discussed on, on other episodes. But the subscription thing with Musk is interesting because I, I read the entire transcript of his first meeting with Twitter staff. That's the kind of thing I like to do. And it is fascinating. He's got so many ideas for it. It's ultimately, someone said, aren't you trying to become basically a bank? And he sort of implies that he is. He, he wants he wants it to become a payment platform because he, of course, ha- helped found PayPal. Mm. Wasn't he the co-founder of PayPal? So he wants to he wants it to be similar to that, but sort of even more extensive. And people even talked about wouldn't you end up loaning money? He's like, wait, I don't see why not. So he, he he wants it to be very extensive. And one thing about the subscription model is apparently it's also to stop bot accounts because if you if you require a phone and a credit card, he's saying it's not totally hack proof, but that's the most secure thing we have. So mm-hmm. if you require that of people, you stop uh, big state actors or whatever, whoever they are, on mass being able to just easily generate millions of bots. They can still do it, but it will cost them a lot more mm-hmm. with this $8 thing. Apparently, it will cost them like a few pence versus a lot more if, with this $8. But it's not just the cost. It'll, it just makes it much harder for them to clone accounts or something if you require a card and a, right. and a, and a phone. Right. So he and actually idea- has that in mind. Okay. Yeah. And the idea is that unless you've got the kind of blue tick, then you wouldn't have um you won't have any serious influence on twitter so if the bots 
can't work out a way to game that system, then it'll reduce their influence. Exactly. And what's quite interesting is, well, I'm still on the, um, the I'm, I'm on some old iteration of Twitter and I refuse to update because I just don't like change. I'm on an old iOS. I don't want to update. But so I don't actually see the new blue ticks. And I actually only just got that weird thing that said official underneath the blue ticks, which has already been ended. But I'm, I'm only just getting it for some reason. But there was this search. Someone did a kind of search of shame. I don't know if there's actually any shame in it, but they, that's the way they put it, where you can search for whoever's just paid for the blue tick. And I found that which of the people I'm following had already paid for the blue tick, and it was quite interesting. But they still didn't even look at – they didn't register as a blue tick on my uh, Twitter because I haven't – I'm behind. And when I went on my desktop, they were blue ticks. Right. But you, would you do it, Toby? Yeah, well, I did try to do it on behalf of the Free Speech Union yesterday um, uh, because the FSU does not have a blue tick. We've got about 80, 80 plus thousand followers, but no blue tick. Um, and so I thought, well, I might as well buy a blue tick. And I support Elon Musk. I support what he's trying to do. I think moving to a subscription model is smart. Um, but I wasn't able to do it because it's been temporarily disabled um, because of all these fake accounts that that seemingly did manage to, you know, um, pass themselves off as um, different you know, real people um, and, re- and caused havoc um, and, I don't know, affected the share price. Um, but uh, anyway, I hope, you can, I hope you can iron that out, iron that wrinkle out. And yeah, when, when, it, when the service comes back on stream, I will, I will do it. I think for the FSU, I don't know about myself, I think I'll try and cling on to my gratis blue tick for as long as I Legacy. possibly can. Yeah. But I'm not. I, I never got the official status. Apparently, that, that supposedly, if you're a public figure, you get official status. So I think there's going to be like there's going to be like three tiers, right? Kind of there'll be um, subscription blue ticks, then legacy blue ticks, and the legacy blue ticks will be divided into official and and non-official uh, blue tickers. And um, and now now I've got. It sounds like official blue tick will be the highest tier you know, official legacy blue ticks. So naturally, I want to be in that club. So I'm slightly annoyed that I haven't been given official status because I'm a public figure, aren't I? Anyway, so yeah. uh, I have to wait. Maybe there's a well, way of keeps, petitioning people about that at Twitter. It keeps changing. and Musk will work it out. I believe in Musk. He'll work it out. He has so many radical ideas for the company that are really exciting if you read that transcript. And I hope it works out for him. The only problem is they, they might be facing, um, you know, negative several billion cash flow Per yeah. year, so that, that he says people have to get get on it now with a maniacal sense of urgency. But speaking of uh, subscription models, shall we do our ad, Toby? Yes, yes. Unlike, yeah, we, we, you don't have to subscribe to this podcast. So we are we are at the mercy, actually, of our <laughs> one advertiser, Thor Holt, who can dictate that. That's what. That's why I've, uh, he, he's 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 very pro DeSantis, which is why I've had to. Temper my enthusiasm <laughs> You're a for Trump. Yeah, I'm now a shill for Thor. Anyway, uh, actually, I, I've just done a Thor a great disservice. There. I'm sure that he's even more, f- more a fanatical Trump supporter than you. So, skeptics, meet Thor Holt. I know Thor personally. He's provided pro bono support to FSU cancel culture victims since we launched. And he'd like to connect with you, especially if you run a business and you're facing challenging times. Because when Thor isn't supporting Free Speech Union members in the eye of a Twitter storm, he helps businesses through tough times. For example, an SME facing 20% redundancies worked with Thor and within four months landed uh, new contracts to the tune of £20.4 million, avoided redundancies and secured a 10-year project pipeline. Sounds like Elon Musk should take advantage of Thor's services. Anyway, here's a message from Thor, and I won't try and do his... Um, Scottish accent. 
In my experience, this is Thor speaking, not me, business has been a lonely place for free thinkers since 2016. A regrettable, if understandable, lack of individuals able to speak their mind on many issues. Brexit, climate, Trump, ESG, or whatever diversity gruel of the day is being dished up. Actually, in 2022, coming out as a free thinker in the boardroom could be as risky as donning your Trump 2024 MAGA cap and heading down to a BLM rally. But let's focus on what we can still do. After all, in these chaotic times, there are deals to be done and business missions to deliver on. As your ghost non-exec, I don't have to sit on your company board, but I do bring the positive challenge and performance boost of a good non-executive director. You'll be more focused and your business, whether a one-person limited company or an SME, will win more deals, create more value and enjoy the process with me and your team. I'd love to hear from you, whether interested in my services or you'd just like a coffee and some fellow free thinker encouragement. You can contact him. This is me speaking now. You can contact Thor at linkedin.com forward slash in slash Thor Holt, or one word, or send a telegram message to him at at Thor underscore Holt. P.S. And this is Thor speaking now. I also run a London Callers Coffee Club Mastermind with online and face-to-face options. Coffee Club Focus is on what we can still do to not just survive, but deliver on business missions and create opportunity no matter how dark the days ahead. As a weekly skeptic listener, you qualify. So please get in touch. I'm thinking that maybe I should do the Scottish accent so to make it clear when it's Thor speaking and when it's me speaking. I wouldn't have to keep saying, this is me, that's Thor, this is me. Yeah, that was a very complicated multi-layered narrative of that advert. It was uh, it was like some sort of postmodern novel trying to, trying to follow that. But yeah, we, we maybe we should do the accent. Um, uh, there's been con- controversy about your accents, but I think, you could, I think you could safely do Scottish. All right, now let's go to Will Jones for our roundup of the week's top stories. So I'm here with Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic. And Will, the Pfizer chief has boasted, not the Kaiser chiefs, the Pfizer chief has boasted that COVID will continue to be a multi-billion dollar franchise for years. That sounds to me like saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah, so it was on a call to investors and the chief financial officer uh, was uh, reassuring them that their investment was in good hands because the virus was going to carry on bringing in the money for for many years to come, saying that it's going to be uh, somewhat like a flu, but more deadly, he said. And this came at a time when they, uh, the company is preparing to whack up the cost of their vaccine from $19 or so per shot to a massive $130 per shot so that they will, uh, on some estimates, uh, make profit of 10,000% because some estimates are that it only costs about a dollar to make each shot. So they're really, really raking it in now. Wow. I find that amazing that he actually said that. It kind of reminds me of Bill Gates on some US business channel before all this started. He was talking about vaccines and he said he he gets a return from vaccines that he can't get from anything else. He just openly said that. And I always think that's a good line of attack to use for the normies. You can't sort of go in with the vaccines there to kill us all. You know, it's a depopulation attempt. I think it's good to just say, what about just naked greed? 
So this seems like a, a classic example of that. Well, it's well known in um, in America that the flu vaccine is given every year to so to everyone, to so many people, not because it particularly does very much, but just because uh, they want to be using the manufacturing capabilities and keeping it all ticking over just in case something deadly uh, comes along so that they're ready. So they're giving all these vaccines and making them and buying them. This isn't a conspiracy. This is just well-documented and well-known just to keep everything ticking over and to uh, and keep lining the pockets of the, of the pharmaceutical wow. companies. Yeah. So I didn't realize that. That's amazing. So let's move on to UK government lost £37 billion to fraud during the pandemic. I'm no expert, Will, but that sounds like quite a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, £37 billion, this has been estimated. Uh, we had Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson from uh, Oxford writing about this on the site this week. They've calculated it, and this is from the schemes the government set up to help businesses and uh, and people to get through the pandemic, and they just and they just abandoned all due diligence. They abandoned all checks, all, or almost all checks, um, on all these loans so that businesses were just able to get, just to be able to get so much uh, money and set up businesses and just and apply for loans and not get checked instantly latched onto by uh, criminal gangs and uh, anyone wanting to make a, a fast buck and knew how it worked and just and, and the, the cost and given, given that the black hole in the public finances that they're that they're jacking up all the taxes to try to cover is estimated to be what 50 billion and the and the, what there's estimated to be just just lost to fraud uh, in the last uh, couple of years due to the pandemic 37 billion pounds I mean that is not a small amount of money so shocking shocking uh, lack of Uh, lack of care madness and staying with covid a commemoration has been suggested we've had the amnesty suggested by the atlantic which went down so well now we've got the covid commemoration yeah another cup of cold sick for us uh the um (laughs) Uh, this is uh, a, a proposal from the government, uh, which they've given uh, lots of money to set up. And there's a, um, a consultation now and the commission that's setting it up has got all the worthies on it, people from the NHS and people from Imperial College and Nicky Morgan, back from the dead. And they're consulting on what should be in this COVID commemoration. Should it be a, a day of remembrance? Um, and they've proposed various days like the first death or the declaration of the pandemic on like March the 11th, or the f- first lockdown on March the 23rd, you know, days we obviously really want to want to remember, Nick. And there's a consultation out asking for people's views. However, uh, our readers have been on to uh, this, this consultation to, to, have a, to, to give them their feedback and have found that the, the questions are somewhat biased and contrived because they, they don't allow you to say that you don't want a commemoration, you don't want a day of remembrance or a, or a monument or whatever. They just ask you what kind you want, and they don't give very, very much opportunity to give a, your freehand feedback. So they're kind of skewing it, really, towards the outcome that they want. Uh, but that's, it looks like we're going we're gonna to be stuck with one because I can't see Rishi uh, pulling the plug on it, unfortunately. Uh, so just let's just hope it doesn't become some <laughs> some awful day in the in the calendar each year that we have to go and clap and stand on the doorstep and clap and bang pots and pans for the fading NHS. Yeah, yeah, or or nurses just dance uh, on a certain day every year in that appalling way. And I also love the idea you go on the website and it's just these loaded questions. Is this commemoration idea good, really good, or great? <laughs> <laughs> just tick the one that you prefer. Um, that's pretty depressing. Let's get on to... Uh, the second of our unholy trinity, which of course is climate net zero madness. And we've got 41% of climate scientists don't believe in a climate emergency. 
Yeah, this is a new survey. Heartland Institute and University um, we did a survey of top climate scientists. They, they give the definition of that. It covers people in various fields uh, that have something to do with the climate. And, um, and, they, and they asked them various questions about what they thought was happening with the climate and whether humans were causing it and how bad it was. And they found that although most of them did believe that humans were causing at least half of the recent climate change, a huge number, 41%, didn't believe that that was causing significant harm. That's 41% essentially saying they don't believe in a climate emergency, which is a huge figure. And it really puts into context, well, blow, blows apart that claim that 90, of a 97% consensus among climate scientists that's, that's put around uh, from some dubious survey that some, someone did some time back saying that, they're all, that all climate scientists are supposedly behind the massive push, uh, the alarmist push to net zero. And clearly we can see that that's, uh, that's not the case. And in fact, and on another question where they were asked whether climate change is causing uh, more extreme weather, more of them said that they thought that it was only slightly increasing the uh, amount of extreme weather amount of extreme weather that we were having uh, than said that it was significantly doing so. 46% said they thought it was only slightly increasing extreme weather, and whereas 41% said that they thought that it was significantly. Uh, so, so if only if they think that all it's doing is slightly increasing extreme weather, well, it doesn't really sound like it's worth impoverishing us and taking us back to Stone Age for, does it? Well, that's the logical view, Will, but unfortunately you're trying to take on a cult with facts and statistics, so it's never going to work, uh, tragically. But um, I appreciate the effort. Let's get on to one last story. British universities told to decolonize maths. We've touched on this before on Free Speech Nation, on GB News and, and things like that. It's not the first time I've seen this, but it is incredibly annoying and insane. Yeah, so... Can wokery, can decolonization nonsense, can is anything safe from it? Well, it seems that not even maths and science is safe. We have uh, British universities, a quality standards body has launched a consultation where they're urging and telling uh, universities that they should decolonize their mathematics curriculum. And the uh, mathematician has, for obvious reasons, uh, being logical people, mathematicians strongly objects to this idea, has gathered together um, others um, in, his, um, in his field, uh, including from ethnic minorities and has written a letter, an open letter, uh, complaining vociferously about this um, this ridiculous imposition, uh, which involves things like having to, to teach a very particular and skewed aspect of history of maths. And as they point out, teaching the history of maths isn't even core to, uh, to learning uh, maths at university. But he says if they are going to learn the history of maths, then it certainly shouldn't be done in a skewed and particular and ideologically motivated way. This person has um, also pointed out that this idea of decolonizing maths is is grounded in this in this wider idea of decolonization, which uh, which aims to say that the European, the supposedly European uh, idea of rational objective knowledge is is supposedly racist because it is it is supposedly putting it on a higher plane to other forms of knowledge to other forms of knowledge which are supposed to be equally valid and this agenda wants to put this objective rational knowledge which obviously maths is very much a part of um, on the on the same lines as well, I don't know what I mean, mythology you know um, making up stories I don't know I mean, what is it that they're trying to what is it they're trying to make it equivalent to but it's um, very regressive very putting things turning back the clock to pre-modern ways of thinking and it's good that mathematicians are pushing back um, against this gobbledygook. Yeah, and there was there was the argument that it's actually a racist statement in itself. As it says here, there's nothing particularly European about rational knowledge. 
Maths has always been an astonishingly international pursuit. The digits we use today were first written in India and inspired by Chinese mathematics. They were popularized by Persian and Arab mathematicians. So this idea, it's like that thing we had when like showing up on time is white supremacy and all that. Do you remember that? That came out at one point. So they, yeah. end, they end up being the racist ones. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they point this out that the, um, the, the, the people who are, who are claiming that non-Europeans supposedly are, are, have other forms of knowledge and aren't capable of rising to the standard of, ob- of objective rationality. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, mathematical knowledge is universal, as is shown across all the, the cultures that have, that have done it. And it's just complete nonsense to, um, and offensive really to claim otherwise. Yeah, infuriating and offensive, but we aim to keep you informed, guys. So uh, that was Will Jones, and we'll catch up with Will again next week. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Nick. So do you want to move on to Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle's monologue, which yes. um, which really struck... This was Dave Chappelle's monologue on a recent episode of Saturday Night Live in which he sort of came to the defence of Kanye, um, but... Um, definitely had reservations about the manner in which Kanye expressed himself. Yeah, it was very interesting. It it was very edgy. It was classic Chappelle. I mean, he, he did come out and say things like he said, um, if uh, if there's a group of, of black guys, it's uh, called a gang. If, if there's a group of Italians, it's called a mob. If, if there's a group of Jewish people, it's called a coincidence. So it was quite an edgy joke. But then he also said that they don't doesn't mean they run Hollywood. He said there's a lot of black people in Ferguson, Missouri. Doesn't mean they run it, and that was probably a reference to there was a, a famous sort of shooting of a, of a, a young mm. black man in Ferguson, Missouri. So it was it was edgy. Now it's a big question of can you laugh at yourself, and then can other people laugh at you? I mean, Jewish humor is based on laughing at oneself. That's well established. But then I haven't consulted with, to be honest, with people like Josh, who I normally ask about anything anti-Semitic or potentially anti-Semitic to see how he felt about this. But Jonathan Greenblatt certainly didn't like it. The uh, CEO of ADL, he's sort of, he condemned SNL more than Chappelle, but he, he didn't like it and basically said it, you know, it's, it shouldn't be allowed. But, you know, it, it was comedy and he does attack people from every angle. He, he did a Trump bit that was very interesting about the sort of pros of Trump, the fact that he was someone sort of who'd used the establishment, but was telling on the establishment and telling people how bad it was. He's like, you know, all the things you think we do in this big house, we're doing all of them, then just goes back in the house. But it was really interesting. So he, he, he talked about the benefits of Trump. He also ended up saying that Russia collusion was real, which it wasn't, of course, and annoyed me. But this is the thing. He attacks from various angles. But whether it was anti-Semitic, I, I think it's up to, I suppose it's up to people to decide. But one thing that's interesting is he does a, a fake version of the monologue first. And I think he's done this before, but it's a big story at the moment. Is he did a fake version so that the producers don't know what he's going to do. Then he just goes out and does it live. Right. Oh, is, uh, oh, really? So he did, so they had no idea that was coming. Right. Okay. Well, That's I guess in a, way, in, in a way that lets SNL off the hook, doesn't it? They can say to David Greenblatt, hey, if we'd have known what he was going to say, we never would have given him a platform, but he completely pudwinked us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is one argument. I mean, what did you think of it, Toby? Did you... You didn't see the same. Have, you haven't seen yeah, all of it. I watched some of the highlights. I haven't actually had a chance to watch the whole thing. Though I'm, I'm a Chappelle fan. I actually paid to go and see him and Chris Rock at the O2 earlier this year, and I just missed out on going to his gig at um, Bush Hall in Shepherd's Bush uh, last week. Um, though tickets were 168 pounds, um, which uh, seemed a little steep even for fanatical Chappelle fans. Um, but um, yeah, you know, it was. I mean, he's kind of he's he's very good in that. He never quite commit. He never quite commits to 
an opinion. He's kind of uh, he's got this kind of um, slightly indirect, kind of clever. I mean, for want of a better word, postmodernist kind of shtick in which um, he sort of commented on Kanye kind of his bizarre behavior and the manner in which he went about kind of uh, launching his attack on the Jews as though it, it sort of it, he was funny about kind of how kind of dotty it all was and unexpected and and seemingly kind of you know irrational and crazy um, but without quite distancing himself entirely from you know the sentiments um, and uh, you know he, he's he's he, you can never quite you know you, you can never quite pin Chappelle down, can you? Even though you kind of get a sense that you, you know what he's what he's actually saying. Um, but anyway, I, I like I like I like his I like his kind of style of delivery and, and the kind of elliptical way in which he makes these points and how he sort of somehow manages. I mean, he manages to defend Kanye and and says, you know, at the end that um, uh, you know people sh- it shouldn't it shouldn't be so risky to you know uh, to 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 to, to to say what you think, even if what you think is kind of pretty eccentric and bizarre. Um, you know, there shouldn't be quite so much at stake. Why can't we just be a little bit more relaxed and tolerant? Um, uh, you know, and, and of course, I agree with all of that. Um, uh, and, I, and I think that, and that's usually his kind of overall message is that we should be a little bit more um, uh, permissive in um, what people can say, and we shouldn't be so quick to punish people. And cancel culture is generally pernicious and evil, and all of that I think is fantastic. Um, but but I, I guess you know um, I'm slightly more uh, uh, triggered by anti-Semitism than other people. Maybe um, my wife is Jewish. Uh, well, my my father-in-law, my late father-in-law was Jewish and um, his family only just escaped the camps in Prague and um, my children under the well under under one of the I think the Nuremberg laws um, if 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 you are the grandchild of a Jew uh, if you were the grandchild of a Jew in Nazi Germany you you would be carted off to the camps and that would mean that you know had the Nazis won um, in some bizarre alternative universe i'd still married caroline then my children would be vulnerable to being carted off to auschwitz so um i am quite i'm sorry a bit a bit more easily kind of triggered by anything vaguely hinting of anti-semitism than uh, probably most people well that that makes sense it's not like i love it and i'm scouring the internet <laughs> looking for anti-semitic jokes but um i think one thing Chappelle does is that and you made lots of good points there but one thing Chappelle does he, he just doesn't like to criticize any black person which he openly says he he talks about herschel walker and said like i don't i, I don't want to criticize him because he's black but he is uh, obviously stupid or a slightly better phrase than that um i think he said oh observably stupid he said i did notice that was the time the audience clapped the most because they were uncomfortable with some of the jokes but when it comes to um lefties having a go at black people with the wrong views that's their favorite thing to attack they mm. absolutely love that don't they so herschel walker was a republican candidate and Chappelle called him dumb and the crowd absolutely whooped that up because i've noticed that that's the thing that lefties love the most isn't it a, a, a non-white person who has the wrong views they get to be as mean as they want to them immediately and take away their black card mm. but yeah other times the audience seemed quite uncomfortable as they would be with some of the jewish jokes and also with some of course the trump stuff but Incidentally, yes, did you on. think I, I? I don't. I mean, I, I actually went along to a recording of an episode of Saturday Night Live um, uh, back in 
what the mid to late 90s and um there weren't that many people in the audience it wasn't like they were doing it in front of a large audience um do you ever see the audience do you, do, does the camera ever pan to the audience or do you just assume there are lots of people there because of the volume of laughter i wondered if there was any canned laughter um uh, accompanying um uh, Chappelle's monologue it's the laughter sounded quite real because it sounded not that loud and, and sporadic mm. and sometimes they didn't like some bits so it may have been quite real um some of these late night shows i know people have done them and they've struggled with the audience you, you actually don't like the conan show has like quite a the audience is it's quite hard work sometimes that they're, they're not it's not beefed up with canned laughter they're just this tired audience that have been there a long time they cut to the audience during, I think it was the James Corden bit, and they were all wearing masks, weren't they? So that's a tough audience that's still wearing masks <laughs> in, in 2022. Yeah. So That's not a great yeah, sign. I if, I, I, if I was a stand-up comedian and I walked out on stage and the entire audience was masked, I would, I would, would, my heart would sink. I would think, geez, I'd just walk off again, I think. No well, hope. We had to do it during the... Yeah, well, that, we, I did do gigs like that back in the, in the day during the peak of COVID madness. But um, one thing I just finally add on that, Toby, is that Chappelle is probably the greatest living stand-up now. Patrice O'Neill possibly had that title when he was alive. Then it probably, then you could argue Louis C.K. Then he's had a sort of fall from grace where he, he never quite came back after his incident and was as funny. And um, Norm MacDonald would have been a good shout as well, sadly deceased as well now. So it has to be Chappelle. He's, he, to me, he's far and away now the best living stand-up in the world. And I just think it's funny that I say this because someone was replying to a point about Chappelle on Twitter and they said, the bottom line is Chappelle's just not funny. I was thinking, is that, <laughs> is that the bottom line, really? The greatest stand-up in the world is not funny. I was like, you can't win. People have called me not funny and things like that. But you can't win. If Dave Chappelle's not funny, then who is, really? Yeah. Um, and actually, this is a good opportunity for me to plug um, the uh, Free Speech Union's Christmas special at Comedy Unleashed on December the 12th. Um, kicks off at seven o'clock. We've got a fantastic lineup on the bill, and um, uh, tickets are very cheap. If you go to the Free Speech Union website, freespeechunion.org, click on events, you'll be able to purchase tickets. They're now on sale to members of the public. Should be a great night. I'll be there propping up the bar. Come and say hello. Um, and, you know, Douglas Murray, um, he pointed out that comedians have. It, 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 given that we are going through this kind of uh, weird, censorious moment in which it's very difficult to speak your mind about many political issues um, without getting into trouble, comedians have suddenly become important again in a way that they haven't been for you know decades. It's like um, as important as Lenny Bruce was in kind of pushing the envelope, in kind of carving out space for people to be able to express themselves um, uh, and. Dave Chappelle is obviously at the absolute forefront of that, but he's, you know, he's he's a, he, in the culture wars. Um, he is he is uh, probably a more important figure than Douglas Murray. And yet, especially in this country, the the actual comedian who's trying to say something of note is driven out of the entire industry. One could argue because the entire industry is totally woke and therefore totally redundant and supporting the establishment. Is that but you that a- was driven out? That's me, but that's that's not just me. That's virtually everyone. Yeah, that's me yeah. or Leo or any number of other people. But not you know, a Comedy Unleashed, it, which is why the Free Speech exactly. Union is hosting its Christmas party now. So go to that, everyone. And um, do you want to say a brief word about the World Cup, Toby? I, I just put it as a weird, as if you had a brief statement. But I'm, I'm, you know, normally I'd be enthused about the World Cup as a lifelong football fan. Watched the Italian ninety as a young child and was found it's a magical experience. And never stopped watching World Cups after that. I even watched virtually every game of 1994. We weren't even in it. 
which was a great World Cup in the United States. But this one, I just don't care. I can't bring myself to care. What do you think? Yeah, no, I th- I'm finding it difficult to bring myself to care as well. I, like you, the first World Cup I remember watching and really getting into was Italia 90. Um, and every World Cup has been a disappointment since then, hasn't it? Why is that? Is that because um, the, no, no, no subsequent England squad has matched the 1990 team? Um, is it because we did comparatively well compared to most other years um why what was it just our age was it the atmosphere I, yeah but it, i remember i remember kind of i remember the, the the becoming so kind of um mesmerized by gascoigne and waddle and you know uh, the rest of them i sort of they almost grew in stature it was like they became giants in my imagination it was like uh, i haven't i haven't been quite and that, that's really what got me into football and nothing since has ever quite lived up to the glory of Italia 90. Do you know what? I'll agree and disagree slightly. It did have an incredible magic. I mean, I was eight was one reason, <laughs> but it was the, <laughs> but I remember it incredibly clearly. I, I remembered entire bits of commentary, you know, when David Platt scored in the last minute of extra time, you know, David Platt with the volley against Belgium. It stayed in my memory indelibly. People don't believe you can remember things from that age, but of course you can. And, um, yeah, Gaza, as you said, we had an incredible team, Lineker, who's later turned out to be evil, but was a hero back then. We had Beardsley, we had Pierce, Butcher. It's an extraordinary team. Mm. Shilton, it, Paul Parker. It's, I mean, I'm not even naming everyone. We had, you know, Platt, it, as I've said, it, absolutely incredible team. Um, yes, yeah, so it was partly that. It was partly the magic of Ness and Dorma and Pavarotti and the whole sort of romance of the tournament. It, it was something very special. But the only part I'll disagree with you on is that there were some special moments later, Euro 96, when mm-hmm. we got to the semi-final, mm-hmm. and in 1998, when Owen scored that goal against Argentina, yeah, and of course we were robbed in that game. You know, there was the Sol Campbell goal. Beckham kicked the guy and got sent off. But that that mm-hmm. there were some 96 and 98 were some moments as well. But you're right, moment, nothing's yeah. ever topped 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, 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 I've written about um, the forthcoming World Cup in my Spectator column this week, um, and uh, made the um, fairly obvious point that um, there is something. Uh, uh, pretty uh, disgustingly hypocritical about um, uh, Gareth Southgate um, uh, and um, the FA kind of participating in this cup, albeit kind of, you know, under mild protest, um, uh, given that they are supposedly so committed to taking the knee, opposing, you know, discrimination against people of colour and LGBT people, and here they are, kind of trotting off to enjoy the hospitality of a regime which has actually built the World Cup infrastructure using kind of migrant workers who are horribly exploited and who are almost without exception people of color, and uh, a country in which you can still be in prison for seven years, you know, just for being gay, Um, and you know, women um, uh, have to get their male guardian's permission in order to marry or to study abroad and so on and so forth. I mean, it's like, why go on and on about their values and how important their values are to them? And they're so critical of people who challenge those values in any way. And yet, they, they, you know, they're, they're willing to kind of essentially jettison them, um, uh, you know, um, in order to participate in a World Cup, presumably, because there's so much money at stake. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, 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 I, I, I don't think that we should boycott the World Cup in Qatar. Um, uh, you, know, um, you know, why hold football to a higher standard than other sports? It's not as if we haven't participated in sporting contests hosted by unsavory regimes before. Um, no, I just think that 
you know, people like Gareth Southgate and Gary Neville and Gary Lineker should just shut up about, you know, um, wanting to should stop preaching from their soapboxes and wagging their fingers at the rest of us. And, um, you know, otherwise they're inevitably going to look like fools and hypocrites when events like this come along. Absolutely. And we saw that the USA team the other day had changed their logos for a rainbow flag. So they're doing a lot, Toby. <laughs> Definitely still playing in the tournament, but they've got a rainbow now. So it's, it's all fine. Well, and, they're, and they're all going to be wearing these, um, well, the captains. Are, so t- I think 10 football associations, European football associations, including uh, the English Football Association, are going to be wearing, the captains of the teams are going to be wearing these um, uh, one love armbands i think is it is it one love and um and the idea is that um everyone is united by their love of football and therefore they should be opposed to discrimination but it's it's a campaign that was started by the dutch football association and it's a bit like kick it out it's a campaign against discrimination within the game not discrimination in a country so it seems like a fairly toothless sort of protest stage absolutely Well, those are our stories this week. Now let's go to everyone's favourite section, Peak Woke. All right, we've got some good ones this week. Uh, Shall I go first, Toby? I've got several nominations. I almost don't know where to start. I think I have to start with the beauty contest in uh, Greater Derry in New Hampshire in the USA. And this was won by basically a bloke called Brian. (laughs) It was a guy called Brian... Nguyen, and he's, he's a trans contestant. And let's be clear, he's not even a particularly good-looking man. It's, it's, it's an Asian, what haters would call a man, but clearly a beautiful woman who has entered this uh, beauty contest and managed to win it versus all these other, what would you call them, cis, cis girls who, are, who, who all lost and had to pretend to like it and all clapped. And Brian Nguyen, G- 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 I don't know how you say the name. I'm so sorry, everyone wrote the said about the tournament uh, tournament <laughs> contest <laughs> i'm so honored to be crowned your new miss greater Derry 2023 and i'm thrilled to show you all what i have up my sleeves uh, it's not really what's up your sleeves that we're worried about right <laughs> <That, laughs> this is this is what happens if you abolish the bikini section <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so that that happened absolute madness i'm sure you all saw that on the internet my other top nomination I think would have to be this policeman who wore a menopause vest. This was the assistant commissioner, Matt Jukes of the Metropolitan Police. He's the Metropolitan Police uh, Police's new he for she gender equality lead. No idea either, guys, what that is. And he wore a meno vest, basically a heated vest <laughs> that he said gave him a, a new empathy with with women's experience. And he, he said that um, wearing the jacket had given him heightened awareness of the experiences of menopausal women and vowed to redouble my focus to normalize our conversations about the menopause at work. And many people like Alison Pearson pointed out this was massively offensive, apart from being stupid and pathetic, because it, wearing a heated vest is not what the menopause is like. <laughs> There's many, many aspects to it. It's not about just being a bit hot at work, although that is one, <laughs> I suppose one aspect of it. So that was incredibly <laughs> ridiculous. And um, I suppose if I had a third one, just just because I did promise a bumper peak woke, was that Gettysburg College posted this, uh, they put up this advert that said, tired of white cis men, come and paint and write about it. And uh, thankfully, the students found this to be incredibly offensive and ridiculous. And it's been postponed for now. So, uh, so I think people are getting a little bit tired of the, the open hatred against poor old white so-called cis men. 
But I think out of those, I'd probably nominate the beauty contest. But it's very, it's a, it's very, there's many contenders this week. What do you have, Toby? Yeah, I don't think I've got anything which quite matches up to either the beauty contest or um, the Menno vest. Um, so I'm going to concede defeat uh, without even putting forward my nominees. But um, I don't know if you saw this story. There was a story in the Telegraph about how um, Stonewall, the LGBTQ plus charity um, is urging employers um, to um, provide staff with two email addresses, um, a uh, female email address and a male email address. So um, if they if they want to switch genders, there isn't any impediment from an email address point of view. Um, the, the, the way to create an inclusive workplace is to provide everyone with these two email addresses um, so they can switch between them at any time. Um, which seem to be pretty crazy and a recipe for sowing confusion amongst your customers and clients. Um, then there was um, Sean Penn um, presenting uh, Zelensky with an Oscar, uh, presumably not for playing the organ with his organ, um, uh, but for his successful prosecution of the uh, war against the Russian invader. Um, but that seemed to me a pretty kind of pointless, woke gesture, um, giving him his Oscar. Apparently, he's, he's looking forward to taking it back when um, when Zelensky no longer needs it, um, when he's won the war or something, something weird. And Sean Penn can be very odd and clearly isn't um, uh, overblessed um, uh, intellectually. But I don't think it can compete with um, the Menno vest. Yeah, you've got some decent ones there, but I think it has to be... Well, you think it's Menno vest. I think it's, I think it's probably even the beauty contest. But either yeah. way, I win. And the bottom line is I win peak woke. And Toby has to contend with or has to make do with weak poke. I, I, I make do with weak poke this week, yeah. <laughs> Which is fair enough. You can't win every week, guys. All right. I thought we'll just quickly go to one of our reviews, and we always appreciate your reviews. We have a, a four point nine rating on the uh, iPhone, on the i whatever the Apple app is, uh, out of a hundred reviews already, which is amazing after only ten episodes. But I've also gone on Podbean here and found a comment from Jiggy, who says, "Just excellent. Thank you for making me laugh, think, and not feel so alone." And that is something we always aim to do with the podcast. I always think it's great if we can. Show the people, with, there's lots of us out there thinking like this, or at least a certain number of us, and hopefully an increasing number. So that was very nice. Um, do you have anything to add, Toby? No, I think that's probably it from me. Um, uh, no, I've, got, I've, I've already promoted our FSU party. Uh, I guess just to encourage people, if they enjoy the podcast, to donate to The Daily Skeptic. We rely almost entirely on um, donations, and every little helps. Absolutely. And they don't have a subscription model like Elon Musk yet. Uh, but speaking of that, you can also go to my Substack, nickdixon.substack.com, and I will endeavor to put more on there. I put a good one on there recently uh, about my car crash, actually, if you're interested in that kind of thing. But there'll also be more culture war pieces forthcoming. All right, that was the show. Thank you very much, and we'll see you again next week. Bye.